Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. The show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Karen Gallagher. Karen's a senior postdoctoral research scholar with the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Her research focuses on the impact of service-related conditions on higher-order cognitive processes in military veterans. Karen herself is a veteran of Desert Storm and Desert Shield. She served in the U.S. Army as a paratrooper and chemical operations specialist. So I joined a peacetime army, right? All-volunteer peacetime army. In fact, when I told my mom I was deploying to Desert Shield, she said, I knew you would do this to me. (laughs) I was like, you know, I've done a lot of things, but I did not start this conflict. It was not my fault. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. So, first, happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. When we last spoke, you you said you were celebrating earlier this month. Yep. Did you do anything special? Did not. Did not end up doing... Well, I mean, my kids were there, and, you know, that's all I can ask for is a good home-cooked meal and all three boys because they're 20, 24, and 28. So like having all three of them in one spot for more than five minutes is the best gift I can have. So I was happy just to have that. And, you know, uh, it's, I had a big blowout the year before because it was my 50th birthday. Okay. And so this year was 51. Can't believe that, but 51. So it was a little less significant, so to speak. So your boys cook for you? They have. It's usually not worth it to me because the cleanup, <laughs> it's, they're a disaster. I mean, they are three boys that men, young men who will try to top each other mm. in the comedy realm. So if they're cooking dinner for me, they're goofing off, trying to see what they can get me to say, trying to see how high they can flip something out of a pan. It's just chaos. So Okay. Did any of them work at like Benihana in high school? No, <laughs> no, they stayed away from, I mean, the youngest one did some fast food. So did the, the middle one, but they've kind of stayed away from, from that. They probably inherited my lack of cooking skill. So, okay. yeah. Do they take anything from you being uh, like a researcher and an educator? Yeah, I think they're definitely analytical and they definitely are people who want to see evidence. And they like to go up against me on things. I think they just check me once in a while. Like, ah, you know, I'm going to see what she knows about this. And and then certainly they, um, you know, we, we go through this whole thing. The youngest one will do the okay boomer thing. And I'm like, no, 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 Gen X. He's like, it doesn't matter. It's an attitude, not an age. So we have that debate on occasion. So. <laughs> uh, uh, funny story from when I was a medic on an SF team my teammates would go steal all my clinical books and then they would come to me with symptoms. And then if I didn't tell them what kind of strange disease they had from another continent, they would say, Hey, you know, you're not that great of a medic because (laughs) you don't even, you don't even know that I have this crazy wazoo disease. That is impossible for you to actually have. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I imagine it might be something like that. Something like that. Yeah. 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 But it's good. Keeps me on my toes. Yeah. I have to call Ben because I forgot to. Okay. Um, they actually, um, growing up, would bring friends home and say, I know my mom looks small, but don't mess with her. Yeah. You know, she, <laughs> she'll take you out. So <laughs> funny. Oh, how much time do you have, by the way? 
Um, I'm I'm good. I, oh yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not under the gun at this point. No, okay. my my day is done. Hey Ben, what's up? We already started the interview, and I totally forgot to call you. I'm good. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's a little you know we work in some behind the scenes wherever we can, but I got Karen here. Hi. Hey, sorry I couldn't be there. Uh, it's awesome. Thanks for taking the time to meet in person like this too. It's just, it's great. We're excited to be talking with you today. It's great. This is fun. I'm glad I can be here. Thanks. All right, Ben. You're uh, going to spend most of the episode on mute, I take it? Yeah. All right. And uh, Cora's not making an, an appearance? Yeah, my kid's not making an appearance tonight. All right, cool. Well, uh, we'll continue on. So you're in Desert Storm. Yep. Different, what's the difference between Desert Storm and Desert Shield? So Desert Shield was sort of the warning, right? That's where they just, and I was out of Fort Bragg, so rapidly deployable base, right? You can go anywhere. And so it was pretty early on um, in the conflict, but it, it was really a show of force. Like, you better not mess with us. We've got, you know, all these nations represented here. We're just massing our troops, mostly... Mostly in Dahran and Saudi Arabia, you know, that's where the air base was set up. And we were mostly all just kind of there. Mm-hmm. We kept setting deadlines, you know, these deadlines kept happening. And as it progressed into, I mean, we've just had the the 30 year anniversary. I, the number took me back a little bit. I, mean, I had my 21st birthday there. So just had the 30 year reunion or um, anniversary of that, um, of that conflict going from shield to storm. So it was very much a hard delineation. It's not like, well, one kind of blood. It was, it was a laying in a tent, waking up my motor sergeant and my first sergeant because the, the air, um, the show of force going in air going was just intense. It was loud. It was massive. And that day, I mean, leading up to it, I knew it was kind of coming. I was the chemical person. I was getting more, you know, doing the downwind predictions, mop level was going up, all of these things were happening, but it was definitely this, you are the lightning and the thunder of desert storm, Schwarzkopf says, and then in we go. And then on, we were boots on the ground. And so then that was also just a massive movement, just crazy, massive movement. So you came in from Saudi or did you jump in? No, I didn't jump in. Very few people actually jumped in. I mean, there are some, um, I was 18th Airborne Corps, Fort Bragg, which 82nd Airborne Division is part of 18th Airborne Corps. But being 1990, 1991, even for a female to be chemical and airborne in that era was very rare. It was a very rare designation. So I didn't jump in, but we were, I was attached to 35th Signal Brigade, which was at the time, airborne and out of Fort Bragg. They're not in Fort Bragg and they're not airborne. Like every time I see the insignia without the airborne tab, it just looks wrong to me, but that's that's what it is now. But then it was, you know, largest communication brigade in the world. And I was attached to HHC as the chemical person. And so, yeah, you moved up from Dahran into like KKMC and, and all of the the base is there towards Iraq and Kuwait. So it was the deal. It was interesting. I mean, that was, and that was also, uh, there were so many scuds every single day, it seemed like, that we would have kind of pools, like what time are the scuds, you know, going to go off? What time do you think? And for the most part, the Patriots were fantastic in terms of taking out, you could hear 
You could hear the Patriot break the sound barrier. You could hear it. We, I ended up with pieces of Scud, maybe not a wise decision on my part, but given the, the potential for chemicals, I also have an Iraqi gas mask pulled from a Republican Guard bunker, also not maybe a smart choice given chemical exposure. But so this was sort of a, an ongoing thing. We're actually coming up quickly as we move into vet February to the anniversary of um, I happen to be back in Dahran when the lone scud that got through and leveled the building was we were there. So that was sort of the I would say the defining event of of that war for me was that experience. Yeah. Yeah. There were there were uh, reservists who had been in country, I think, three or four days. And this was literally a day or two before the conflict was over. And it just killed. The building was just rubble. Um, it hit our compound so much that the, the guard and the tower was knocked out of it. I mean, it was a strong explosion. So that for me, I think was probably the, the defining um, moment of it. Before we uh, get into like what chemical specialists do and everything like that. Let's talk about your joining the army. So you went to an all girls Catholic high school, you joined the army without telling anybody. Yeah. How did that hit your parents? Hard. Um, so I, I was in an all girls Catholic school. I was seeing a recruiter behind everybody's back. I made it all the way through MEPS, my physical, my ASVAB, everything without telling a soul. And when it was time to, I chose my MOS, it's time to swear in and sign on the dotted line. I said, I want to call my, my mom and dad first. And they said, go ahead. Called my mom and dad. I said, they answered the phone. I said, I'm joining the army. I love you. Bye. Click. Just hung up. No, no opportunity for a response. No opportunity for a response. And um, I had two months of delayed entry. So signed everything, went home. And for two months, every time I passed my mother in the hallway, she would cry and um, my dad said, you know, I had an airborne guarantee. I told my dad everything. And my dad said, you know, your mom's pretty, she's pretty upset about this army thing. Maybe you let me get her through the army thing and we tell her about the airborne later. Yeah. I was like, good idea, dad. He said he, he was for it. He thought it was a good idea. It's not what my mom wanted. But in her defense, when I deployed, she was like mom of the century. The yellow ribbons were up. The care packages were flowing to not just me, but everybody over there. She was organizing it company wide to get every comfort she could to the troops deployed there. And the Christmas tree stayed up till I got home. So she was, you know, <laughs> when it counted, she was in my court. So, yeah, yeah. The two decisions, one to join mm -hmm. and one to do it all on your own. Mm -hmm. What went into those? I sort of lived this Catholic, upper middle class, Orange County, California existence where everyone looks like me. Everybody's background is very similar to mine. And our futures are all going to be relatively the same. And I just didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have buy-in. I didn't necessarily feel like I belonged in that flow or in that moment. And I was probably too immature to express that, but I just knew that I had to take control of my life and get out of that destiny so I could figure out just who I was. You know, I've been wearing a Catholic school uniform my whole life. I had been in this lockstep existence. And I always joke because I mean, the joke is, right, wait, you wanted to get out of homogenous lockstep uniform, so you join the military? You know, it doesn't, but it really was for me, this opportunity. 
No, no person in my entire high school had ever enlisted in the military, ever. Recruiters weren't allowed on the campus. It was closed. Uh, and in fact, when I enlisted, the nuns called me into the office and berated me for maybe half an hour, telling me I was, if I went to war, I would be sinning and all this stuff. And I remember walking out of the office and Father Joe, his door was open. He goes, come here, come here. He goes, don't listen to those old hens. I was a chaplain in the army. You're fine. Get back to class. So that's awesome. I was happy for Father Joe. Yeah. I had something similar like my, uh, so, you know, I graduated high school the same year we invaded Iraq, like three months mm-hmm. before we invaded Iraq. Three people from my class joined the military and the other two were twins. So, uh, was not from a place that sent a lot of their kids to the military. Right. One of my guidance counselors or my guidance counselor, she called it a waste. She goes, you're a smart kid, Matt. This is a total waste. And I was like, all right, well, we can cancel the rest of our sessions this semester. We can save that time. Yep. I I mean, I was, I was given the same message. Do you know what kind of people join the army? You should at least go to an academy and be an officer. And I also knew I did. I lacked the maturity for that. I knew I, I just needed something different. So yeah, same thing. It's how many women were going through airborne school with you? Not very many, you know, handful, I would say in, in the huge, if if I look back at that picture, there's maybe 10 of us in in the whole, you know, count all the companies, you know, there, I, I would say there's probably 10, 12 of us. Um, and I would say our attenuation rate was probably very similar to the male attenuation rate. You know, it was, it was hard. I've, I've always been able to run. I'm a Boston qualifier. It is, it is as being airborne. That is very important if you can run at least in airborne training. And I remember when we got there, it was still somewhat segregated in terms of like running groups. And I remember there were a couple of guys there I went to AIT with, and there were some other guys, oh, the females have it easy. They don't have to keep up in runs. And the guys who went to AIT with me said, not her, she'll smoke you. Don't even try it. She will smoke you. Um, it was something in, in AIT I was kind of known for being able to run. So Did you run in high school or play no. sports? No. Nope. nope. I, I really, I, I like to run. Um, I don't think I have natural ability. I think I have, I think it's mental I didn't even start doing serious distance running. I could always run in the army. Fort Bragg, you run four miles a day, five days a week. You know, we say God does PT on Fort Bragg, right? Because it'll only snow if you're already two miles out and you have to run back anyway. So you run all the time. But I never really competed until I was an adult. And I was 40 when I ran my first marathon. And in one year, I ran three marathons. And by my third marathon, I was qualifying for Boston. So... Maybe there is some natural ability there, but I really do for me feel like it was it was mind over matter for me. You know, I'm short. I don't have this long, wonderful stride. Um, it's just sheer determination. What do you think about running? Because I hate running, but I've done I didn't qualify for Boston, but I've run Boston on like uh, uh, my unit got some bibs. Yeah. and They said who's willing to train for it. Yeah. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you think about? You listen to music? You like, no, I never listen to music. Um, when I run, it is me in my head. If even on a 20 mile training run, it, it doesn't matter. I'll tell you that then there's two reasons for that. Uh, I used to run with music and I was running through a green belt 
And there were a couple of men that I thought at the time were maybe homeless and I didn't think anything of it. I was running by them and I had headphones in and something in my head said, turn around. And I looked behind me, I was being chased and it was this, I was okay. You know, I ended up having, they pushed me off actually into the bushes and I had an, a response because see in my head, I'm like six, three, 280, all muscle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's not what I look like. I'm five, one and like a hundred pounds, but I came at them with profanity and shouting and they, they stood there in shock for a moment. And I ran away. And, um, I, I think that for safety reasons, I started thinking, I, I, I don't, I can't do that. I don't get to run with headphones in, but also when you, if you get really competitive, it can be considered cheating. You could be running with pacing in. And if your, if your time is ever called into question. So I always said, you know, I won't. And then the third part of that is it became like meditation for me. When you've run so far, you pass 10, 12, 15 miles, your brain's going to sort of go where it's going to go. And for me that I always said it was cheaper than therapy. Mm. So it was good meditation. Is there something that brought this on? Yeah. You know, I hadn't really run much since the military here and there, but nothing serious more than a mile or two. Right. And I was, I was actually in a a pretty horrible marriage and in a bad spot. And I think at that point, I used to joke in my head when I stepped out the door, I'm running away from home. I'd always come back obviously. um, But in my head, it was freedom. In my head, it was five, 10, 20 miles of peace. No one talked to me. No one bothered me. No one told me I was doing this wrong or that wrong. And I could just go. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I do actually think that it was the running. I ended up running all these marathons, running Ragnar relays with teams, building this community. And I, th- I, I, I definitely think it gave me some strength back to be able to make a move to being this you know, I'm obviously, I'm in a wonderful marriage now, just to make that clear. But, you know, it was, it was definitely a a response to trauma, to difficulty, um, that, that was the impetus behind that push to, and, and it was like, I couldn't get enough. I would run five miles and it just wasn't enough. I needed to go back. And, you know, I, I thought I could run a half marathon probably within a month of training. I was like, it won't be enough. It won't be enough. I gotta run farther. So I know. <laughs> wow. What's the longest? You know, I, I had hoped to be able, I would love to do an ultra. I have no cartilage left in either hip. So that dream is gone okay. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, there's, there's other things, but, um, so I've just done full marathons. Um, and I would say that's, that's the farthest is, is the full marathons. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, training runs where you run 10 miles one day, 20 the very next day. I mean, you're putting up 30 miles in two days. It's quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, as an airborne paratrooper, you only run at like a nine minute pace. And My, just with yeah. everybody, like an entire platoon or company right. with you. And it's just like pain on the knees and the airborne shuffle, they call it, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't imagine with my frame. I mean, back then we ran in, in the old school boots you know, a lot. I don't imagine. And I also, I jumped in a, a ranger rock. So it's bigger, it's heavier. Yeah. I have a small Is it frame. just like dragging on the, was it dragging in front of your feet when you had it hung? I looked like, I have a, 
I have a picture. I look, yeah, I mean, the joke was, let's knock her down and see if she can get back up. <laughs> I mean, it looked like a walking pile of equipment. It was literally boots and, a, you know, a Kevlar helmet. But so I think that being smaller, that was the other thing going in the military. You'll never make it. You'll never make it in jump school. You're too small. You can't do it. For me, that is like fuel. It's just like food. Yes. Tell me I can't do it. It's going to be the first thing I do. And so there was no quit. No quit. What, what about being chemical specialist? So women didn't integrate across jobs until very recently. But even back then, how many did you see there? Because you said there were not very, very many women airborne. There were not very many women in chemical ops. You know, we, we probably had one of the bigger classes of women. Um, although at the time, chemical was combined, combined with smoke. And smoke is a combat MOS. So that's back when we thought generators, we used to joke, smoke on target. Yeah, there's no such thing as smoke on target. Wait, what is that? So these are old school. In fact, this is how I learned to drive a stick shift. I could drive a car, but I got into the army and I got into AIT. And anybody who had a license, that you, you they would make you a driver for your smoke training because you pulled these generators with fog oil. Like these were fog oil generators um, that would produce smoke that you were supposed to say tactically put on target for cover, right? So put smoke down into a valley, like thick smoke. I, I mean, smoke, you, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Like if you held up your hand an inch in front of your face, you can't see it. Just for like concealment? Yeah. Oh, because we're like... If you get in machine gun or sniper fire, you throw a little smoke grenade and yeah. they can't see you behind it. But right. you're like pumping it like a pumping rave. Pumping it like, yeah, seriously. Um, and this is, you know, I'm dating myself here. I'm, I'm, I'm now the old paratrooper telling the old story. But it, it, was, it was definitely considered a combat MOS. And it, it was only recently that they let women do chemical. But I couldn't be in a, a unit where I was part of a smoke squad. I couldn't do that. I had to be just chemical. These rules just have to be like so convoluted. I know. Look at look at the decision there because I'll I, I saw way more action in Desert Storm than my ex husband did. I'll tell you that, and he'll tell you that. So it's 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 funny to me. I mean, you you think about oh now women can be in combat. No now now women can be recognized for being in combat. Read Ashley's War. They were there. You know, we've been there. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But yeah, you're right. There are all these little she can they can be chemical but not on sunday right and not on the first tuesday <laughs> if, it was, if it floats right yeah. so yeah so chemical was um back then it was fort mcclellan alabama which was the women's army corps had long since been gone uh, this was an integrated army but it fort mcclellan alabama was home of the wax and um, although they were gone, it was still, you know, the Wax Museum and everything was still there. W-A-C, not W-A-X, WAC Museum. And that was home of the CDTF chamber, which is the nerve agent training chamber. So back in those days, you spent six to eight hours in a live nerve agent environment in MOP4, decontaminating small weapon, medium, large weapons, establishing a clean line, personal decontamination, crossing the clean line kind of thing. And then you had to wear, I still have my wristband that you had to wear for like a month after you were exposed in case there was accidental exposure. And I guess that's the beauty of being 18, right? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think that much about it. It was just part of the training. 
but for me being attached to a, a communications brigade, it was largely like looking at how, you know, what would be clean lines. It, it, here's the, the, the downwind prediction, which direction would we go? Um, I was the person out there in MOP4 with a nerve agent detector kit when the scuds hit, did a lot of training, maintained all the um, atropine. And then the later when they gave us the morphine for the, the seizures um, that accompany it, maintaining all that equipment and ordering, just kind of, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And of course, the the training in the um, CS chamber, which everybody loves you for when you're chemical. So yeah, mop for your full mm-hmm. protective equipment. Everything. What does it yeah. uh, stand for? Mop. Wish you hadn't asked me. I'll think of it by the end of this. I will think of it and blurt right. it out. So. Okay, cool. Uh, I don't have my OSHA manual for the army. Uh, huge, heavy, sweaty suit, hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, gas mask, hood, rubber boots, rubber gloves, the boots that you can never get on. Yep. Yeah. And that you can't really walk in. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So back to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. I actually want to personally, like, what was it like? Because it was, it was quick. Um, I only know of wars that go on for decades. Right. Right. This is the crazy thing, right? You you know, this is the generation of the forever wars. You know, we have kids who are serving now, young young men and women serving now who weren't even born when when this all started, which is crazy. So I joined a peacetime army, right? All volunteer peacetime army. Um, so I joined as a Cold War kind of kind of peacetime army person. And in fact, when I told my mom I was deploying to Desert Shield. She said, I knew you would do this to me. <laughs> I was like, you know, I've done a lot of things, but I did not start this conflict. That was not my fault. So it was um, interestingly on Fort Bragg, we did a post wide desert training. We were issued desert fatigues. We jumped in, you know, jumped into the drop zones and uh, on Fort Bragg and, um, you know, did all this desert training. And certainly, Back then, we still had older guys who were, you know, old older guys that were tail end of, of Vietnam saying something's happening. We're not just doing this training for the sake of doing this training. I mean, you know, they've ramped up um, vaccinations, all this stuff. And when we got done with the training, went to, you know, like, are we turning in our gear? Why don't you go ahead and hang on to that for just a minute? And we were pretty much deploying pretty rapidly. I mean, we sent the first uh, wave of people out of my unit. I didn't even have full chem- like personal chemical equipment packs for them, individual chemical equipment packs, ice packs. I didn't even have, I had to go like on Fort Bragg and beg, borrow and steal to have updated filters and everything people needed for their masks. And pretty quickly after that, we just kept going in waves and this was still desert shield. And so at that point, um, the commercial airlines had started volunteering to fly us over because we, I mean, we were just going en masse. And so these whole flight crews, these flight attendants would volunteer to, to provide us service on these flights um, just out of the kindness of their heart. It was amazing. But I, I recall thinking to myself, I bet this flight attendant has never said, please place your M16 under the seat with the butt of the weapon placing towards the aisle. I'm sure she's never said that before or since. (laughs) So it was just this surreal, you know, 
having a lifetime of, you know, Panama happened. There were some little things, but nothing this massive. And this awareness of Jesus Christ, like, you know, you joined a peacetime army and here, here you are and you're flying into God knows what. And, and, and you get there and you get there on the ground. And I, for me, the most striking thing was the heat. It, it, it was just this massive wave of heat, you know, and you're all in all this Kevlar and your sleeves are down. And it was, it was the heat. And I remember uh, Coleman, Coco, was the one to pick me up from the air base to bring me back to where the unit was. I was so happy just to see him. It just like made me feel like, I mean, that's a guy from my unit that had been training with. Now I'm okay, right? I got, I got my buddy, I'm okay. Yeah. Um, and it was just this sort of surreal thing. And, you know, in the beginning, it was Desert Shield. We had some opportunity to go into the community, eat some local food even, but that ended pretty quickly and things started locking down. They were getting civilians. There was Aramco was there. So Arab American oil, and it was the weirdest thing. So you're in Saudi Arabia and it's very Shiite Muslim. And then you pull onto this Aramco compound. It's American. And you could be pulling into any subdivision in Scottsdale, Arizona, Chandler, Arizona. It is like a little slice of America. And they had these host a soldier events for the first few weeks we were there. We could go get a home cooked meal, use their phone to call home because we didn't have cell phones back in those days. And, uh, Almost all of their garages didn't have cars in them, but their garages were these huge distilleries because there's no alcohol in the whole country oh, unless right, you can right. get to Bahrain. Okay. And then bringing it back is still good luck. So yeah, they were all making their own. It, it was crazy. So we in the beginning, it was kind of a little more relaxed like that. We had a little opportunity for some downtime mixed in with the British soldiers. I have a whole British Royal Army uniform in my closet. I traded, like, believe it or not, their food is so bad, they would trade MREs. Like they would, they would want MREs. They'd give you almost anything for them. Um, yeah, other countries have really bad, like, uh, the MREs are equivalents. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Like they were happy to get our MREs. And so as things, things just kept tightening up as that deadline for Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait just kept nearing and he just kept flaring up. He just kept, you know, it, it, the troops just kept moving in and, and it became clear, you know, we were going to move from shield to storm. So I was there, gosh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think back to, it. I think I was there a total of five months six months, five, six months. So I was there right at the start, pretty much of Desert Shield, all the way through Desert Storm, and then some of the aftermath of, of that. So, Did you still have the desert, the uh, chocolate chip desert uniform? I have some of it, yeah. Yeah? I still have some of it. I have my... The funny thing is, back then we wore flap, these little floppy weirdo like hats that you could fold the sides up. And I mean, I was airborne. I was used to wearing a beret, but over there I had the chocolate chip yeah. floppy hat. E4 Mafia, you know, rolling <laughs> around. Yeah. So, like, once it kicked off, kind of, how, what did the time from then until departure from theater look like? Did everyone who went spend the whole time there? No, not at all. Um, you know, I think uh, 82nd Airborne Division, some Marines moved in first. They They were kind of in to establish. I think more came in during Desert Storm. I think a lot were left back behind. Certainly, I mentioned um, the reservists who who came into Dahran right before the end of the war. So it, it was definitely a whole in and out 
in and out thing. Um, I was just, I happened to be there early being the only chemical person. I, I was there for the duration pretty much. So I didn't go back to Fort Bragg until my, my unit went back to Fort Bragg. Um, and then that was interesting because we actually went through Ireland. So again, we had commercial flights back, but it was just all military. And we had a layover in Ireland and they actually let us off the plane, which was dumb. Um, yeah. being that we were young and had been in country for so long with no alcohol whatsoever. And we just descended on the one airport pub we could find. And they were so good to us. They were just like cranking out the beers as fast as they could to us. And then um, on to New York City where there was a whole parade and then on to, to Fort Bragg, landing at Green Ramp. And I didn't know, but my dad was there to meet me. So um, oh, wow. they, um, I didn't know he was coming. I thought nobody was going to be able to come. And I landed on Green Ramp and um, they announced a couple of people we have special guests and they announced my father and I was just it kind of got to me at that moment like I'm emotional now even reflecting back on the fact that he because he's passed away since then so the fact that he was he was there the day I deployed he was there the day I got back so it was very very cool wow how did he coordinate did he just hop on a plane and show up at Fort Bragg and be like my daughter's coming back from um you know you know um he and my mother had um contacts with our friends, like my buddy's wife had our dogs. She was, you know, civilian. So she had our dogs while we deployed. And I think that they were just keep all keeping in contact and getting word. So the spouses knew, you know, they're coming home. And so my parents just got word, you know, you just, you couldn't just pick up a phone. You didn't have a cell phone. You couldn't text. You couldn't even email really. You had to write letters and that takes a while. So I had no idea that he was going to be there. Yeah, it's awesome. It was awesome. I heard you say in another interview that you went, you were at a bar with some friends and you went to get the next round and uh, some old guy came up and said, hey, are you a veteran? And then thank you for your service. Yeah. And that left an impact on you. It left a huge impact on me because it, it, and and I'm not sure if I would have been able to articulate it, but I just sort of had this, this sense of, of connectivity, right. That we're inextricably linked across decades uh, of separation and wars. But the fact that he, he watched me there and saw my military ID and did, Hey, did you just get back from over there? Yes, I did. And he, he, he you know, him in, sort of embracing me, hand on my shoulder, shaking my hand. Thank you. And welcome home. Cause when I got back from Vietnam, no one ever said that to me. And we, I'm not letting that happen to you guys. It, it was a we. It was a. It wasn't a bitterness of of look. You guys are getting the ticker tape parades. We never got it. Was a we're we're the ones leading the ticker tape parades. You know we're we're now brothers and sisters. We are we are linked. And that for me, when all these years later in 2010, clinical associate professor at Arizona State University, and it's you know 2009, the current iteration of the GI Bill. Um, the post 9-11 GI Bill was fully, you know, in, in its current iteration. And so there's this influx of all these younger veterans on the campus. And for me, it was like this, it, it was like this passing of the baton, right? Where I turn around and I'm seeing the same look on their face that I had on mine yeah. all those years ago. And they were just as lost in this transition as I was lost in my transition. And I was like, we're not letting it happen to you. 
And so that was sort of that, you know, thread through time, but it definitely, it, it definitely stayed with me. Yeah. The GI Bill was probably way different back then. The Montgomery GI Bill, as yeah. it was called. Yes. Who's Montgomery? Probably like a senator, a senator okay. mm-hmm, who fostered it in. So I had the GI Bill and the Army College Fund, and I was grateful for it. It paid for my bachelor's degree. Um, I was, I got out and went straight to college. Um, one enlistment? Uh-huh, one enlistment. Just did what Just you set out to do? Did what I set out to do, finished my full enlistment, uh, honorable discharge, did everything I said I was going to do, got out and started college. And um, it's interesting because I, I say whether you've served three years or 30 years, at that point, your entire adult identity has been a military identity, you know, that you have this external definition of who you are, what you need to learn, who your team is, what your mission is. You're not determining those things for yourself. They're determined for you. And this moment of, I I mean, I I had panics at time, you know, being outside and especially like looking for my cover, like where, you know, just things that are just so ingrained in you and um, definitely not relating to these 18 year olds I'm now sitting next to in class. I mean, look at the last four years of my life and where I've been and, and what I've done and what I've seen. And now I'm, I'm sitting next to an 18 year old that I don't, not his fault or her fault that I don't relate to, to, to them, but I don't. And to the point where I was a full-time student and people would say, Oh, are you a student? And I would say, not really. I mean, I just didn't feel like that's who I really was. I, I, it, it, it was this weird, I just didn't know where I fit and who, how to relate to people. And, and plus you probably are wanting like a little more respect than someone looking at you and saying, Oh, it's another student. But mm-hmm. you obviously would probably didn't come out and say like, well, you know, I'm a veteran and I'm not yeah. like all these other kids and everything. It's, it's hard to, you know, you don't want to have to articulate that, but it's what you feel inside. Yeah, you do. And I also think that for some of the men that came back, they're more easily identifiable, yeah. you know, and I know, you know, you guys have covered this in the past with, um, you know, I, I don't know if it was a- Andrea Goldstein who talked about it with you or the in- Tara. The invisibility yeah. of the female veteran. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's real. And in, in some ways it can be to your advantage in some ways it's to your detriment. Um, but certainly from an identity perspective, it's hard because it isn't just the invisibility. It's, it's when, when someone, especially back then, I'm hoping it's better now, but back then there were just so few of us that when you said you were a veteran, you're desert storm veteran, uh, you from civilian men and women, you would also get sometime this. Yeah, but not really. I mean, yes, you were in, but it's not like you really served. And it is just. Wow. You know, to why is it OK for you to say that? And how do you know? You don't know anything about me. You can't look at me and tell what I did or didn't do. Um So that was, you know, it was definitely challenging. I would say many of the things that made my interactive style 
successful in the military worked against me somewhat in a young American female culture, especially back in the 90s. You know, there's always the joke about your civilian friends are nice to your face and talk shit about you behind your back, but your, your veteran friends talk shit to your face and talk nice about you behind your back. Yeah. You know, it's that thing. And that just sort of interactive style didn't, I was the only female in my platoon. So I, I definitely developed a, a, a way of communicating a, an interactive style and a thick skin and I'll, I'll dish it out. I won't just take it. I'll dish it out. And it was fun. I had good, solid relationships um, in the military, but I definitely found that I, I struggled. I was perceived as angry. I was perceived as intense. I'm still perceived as intense. I'm intense, but um, hopefully not angry. Uh, Katie Neff, who was on our show, uh, I'm not going to just classify you guys together, but you both happen to be short. <laughs> uh, and she she had some story where someone didn't want to punch her during combatives training. And she was like, listen, you need to punch me right now because mm-hmm. I'm a friggin' Marine. Yeah. And yeah. So Good. You're, exactly. ma- you're making me think of our chat with her. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. You also said that you would go for like weeks without talking to anybody. Yeah. And this I, is up in Washington, so it's not like where you're from. No, not from Washington at all. And at first, it was in community college, which was a, a, a good decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, I didn't relate. I, I didn't relate. And in fact, the one of the best things was I took sign language, American sign language as a foreign language. You don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you don't have to listen to anybody. I mean, you know, you don't like what they're saying. Look away. So, yeah, I would I would feel dis, just this disconnect. I was lost. I was really lost. And I was lost again when I left community college for University of Washington, right? This massive campus. And I'm in a, a fee, it was a female dominated field, speech language pathology, speech and hearing science. It's like 95% women. And I remember they wanted us to put, like they had the, when I got to graduate school, you know, after a couple of years, now I'm in graduate school, they had a whole board up where every, all the grad students put what they're into and their interests. And it was, it was not to stereotype, but it was a whole bunch of planning hobbies, planning my wedding. And I, I was just sarcastic. My hobbies, not planning my wedding, you know, is like I, what I would do. I just, I definitely felt this huge disconnect. Um, and, and it wasn't like now, you know, Arizona state university has the Pat Tillman veteran center and there's still, I mean, there's still resources that aren't there that need to be there, but there's certainly a visibility in veteran resources nowadays. And back then there certainly wasn't. And I, I definitely, I felt like people thought something was wrong with me. If I said I was a veteran, I, it was the reaction was definitely, you know, you know what it's like. You get the, oh, did you ever kill anybody? And you get the, those questions. But it, it was definitely a lonely disconnect. So, When did you start finding some connection? Or did you just stay connected to the people that you served with? Um, you know, it made it impossible being, I was the only veteran in my program. In fact, they made sort of awards at the end of my program. They were joke awards, faux awards, and I was awarded most likely to be a patient at VA. I mean, it was just, they thought it was hilarious, you know? Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I know. I see the look on your face. <laughs> it's exactly was the look on my this face. This is before like the modern VA. This is back when uh, born yeah. on the Fourth of July was yeah. your how you thought about the VA. Yeah, and honestly, I had to go to the VA. I had no other health care at the time. I had just gotten out and back in Washington. I broke my ankle going down a, a, some stairs. I, I broke my ankle. I'm clumsy. Yes, I, I'll just clear that up right now. That's not going down some stairs. I broke my ankle. So I go to VA because I don't have other health care. And they literally put me in a gown. And I was standing in the hallway holding this gown shut in the back. Me and a bunch of just, you know, like Korean War, Vietnam War, and veteran, older guy veterans. And they kept calling my, my last name, but calling me Mr. And I kept going, raising my hand right here, right here. Oh, oh. So I go in to get the x-ray and the radiologist actually came in the room. He said, I had to meet you. I've been at VA for 20 years and I've never taken an x-ray of an ankle where I could see the ankle joint and the knee joint on one slide. I had to see who this veteran was. And then they had to call down to the children's hospital to get a walking boot and crutches that fit my body. They didn't have them. It was crazy. So it was, it was a different, it was a different era, you know, and, and, and that was my experience at Seattle VA. I, I don't want to pretend to characterize the era that all VA was like that, but probably. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably got to be some like super old dude who just has a ton of jumps and just has crushed himself down into like a five foot one. Frame. There's got to be. <laughs> he wasn't in Seattle. Hi, everybody. We just wanted to take a quick break in the action to give some episode specific shout outs. First, I can't believe that I didn't bring this up in the interview, but since Karen and I talk a lot about speech language pathology, I wanted to mention an organization near to my heart called Small Steps in Speech. Small Steps in Speech was founded in honor of my friend, Staff Sergeant Mark Small of 3rd Special Forces Group, U.S. Army. It helps children with speech and language disorders get therapies, treatments, and devices needed to improve their communication skills. As a Special Forces medic, Mark selflessly cared for many sick people, a number of whom were children. More than a decade later, he still serves as the inspiration for this foundation. So if you want to make a positive impact in kids' lives, find out more about the foundation at smallstepsinspeech.org, on Facebook or Instagram at smallstepsinspeech, or Twitter, ssinspeech. Second, Karen and I talk about some of the commonalities between athletes and veterans in this episode. So I wanted to again mention uh, an organization called Merging Vets and Players. MVP is a nonprofit co-founded by our friend and the star of episode five of the podcast, Nate Boyer. Frankly, it does exactly what the name says. It brings veterans and former athletes together to support one another after taking off the uniform. They do this through physical fitness, peer-to-peer -peer support. You can find out more by going to vetsandplayers.org or by searching Merging Vets and Players on your social media channels. Lastly, I want to thank our friend Andy for letting us use his studio to record on the road in Phoenix. Andy's a real estate entrepreneur, and if you're interested in what he does, you can listen to his show, The Andy Griffin Come Up, wherever you get your podcasts. You'll hear some stories, tips, tricks, and strategies from his experience. It's called The Andy Griffin Come Up, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and let's get back to the show.
what inspired you to go into speech and language pathology and eventually the research that you did afterwards and, and going straight from an undergrad into a master? Well, it, it's weird because I don't know that I could have ever seen these phases of my life coming together as serendipitously as they did in that. So I got out of the army. I was chemical. I thought I would be a chemical engineer. Why not? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's often the mindset. I've done this time in the army. I've learned all this. I need to. And nobody in the civilian world was asking me to jump out of planes or, you know, decontaminate or detect nerve agent like that. It wasn't happening. Right. So I was trying to translate my skills in the best way I could. And I actually read something about speech language pathologists, which is, by the way, the same way I found the army. I read an article about women in the army I, that was sitting on the kitchen counter at my friend's house while I was waiting for her. That's how I figured that out. So once again, here's this written material and I'm reading about it and I find out the number one program in the whole country is right there in Seattle. And I decide this is what I'm going to do. And it was an amazing experience. I ended up specializing after some time with, um, I had, I had my, my son, um, who ended up having quite a bit of needs, um, in terms of being on the autism spectrum, needing physical therapy to walk speech therapy himself. And, you know, I kind of, I worked my way through that program. That disconnect again was, I remember I had to live an hour away because I couldn't afford to live in Seattle. I actually lived in a, a, a mobile estate community is what I'll call it. And uh, I drove this Dodge Omni that barely ran every, like an old Dodge Omni. And I drove it every day to campus and found a place to park and walked. And um, I remember sitting in class after having been up with my son, got him to bed, stayed up most of the night to write this paper, finish this paper, get it turned in. And this girl who lived up the street in an apartment her parents paid for and didn't work, I was waiting tables too. She, I heard her go up to the professor and say, you know, I just couldn't get the paper done. Do you mind if I just turn it in tomorrow? I almost lost it. Like I almost came unglued. I, I almost like, what do you mean? You just didn't get it done. How is it that in your world, you just didn't get it done? You know, that wasn't part of my mentality of just not getting it done. Yeah. You get it done. And so I had this, you know, this experience that was a very non-traditional college experience, traditional for most veterans. I was older, I had a family. So I, I did start to connect with a couple of people in my program. One of them was a Two of them actually were Pac-12 female athletes, which I found I find to be interesting given my current path I'm on. You know, they were very they were my closest friends. They were the people I could identify with. And moving straight into that master's program, learning about traumatic brain injury, learning learning about cognitive communication disorders, I was able to eventually just specialize in that. Work medically at Barrow Neurological Institute. Work at I worked at a VA home in Montana. I've been a WOC at VA here, and I've been able to, you know, work in that area. And I went on to Arizona State University to, to teach, to be a clinical professor. So I would, I had a master's degree, I would teach other people with master's degrees. And that's sort of when, when I saw this next generation and, and that whole epiphany. So had I not been on this speech pathology pathway and had all the experience I did clinically in understanding neurology and understanding social language and understanding all those components, I don't think I would have been poised to do a PhD that was dedicated and aimed at 
helping the next generation of veterans somehow transition better. It was like magic. I'm not much of an academic in terms of what I, what I do professionally. Yeah. When you choose to go clinical or research or what is that, what is that kind of spectrum that you could choose to do while you're, while you're gaining this knowledge? Well, you know, it was my clinical profession. It was entry-level master's degree. So you had to have that to even practice. But some people go straight into a PhD knowing they only want to do research. I knew I didn't want to study things at a cellular level or at a speech signal level. I knew I wanted the research to be translatable. I knew I wanted it to be clinically relevant and have an impact. I didn't want it to be uh, to live in some journal. And so you kind of have to, you know, not that those things aren't important because they're the foundation that, that we build on clinically. They're massively important. Right. I want to fly the plane. I don't want to build it. Right. Exactly. But I knew that as a clinician, I could sit across the table from someone and help them. As a researcher, I could develop research-based practices that people could go out and sit across a lot of tables and help a lot of people. And that was the end game. So, so you did a lot of like, uh, well, you made a lot of stops on your way from Washington to Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Montana for a, well, yeah. So I went from Fort Bragg to Washington to Montana, then to Arizona. Okay. Been a, yeah, around a few States and mostly decided to come to Arizona because my father, um, when my father had lung cancer, was dying. I wanted to be closer, and then I wanted to be closer to my mom. So, did they? What point did they move here from Southern California? I just moved my mother here from Southern California like a month ago. Oh, so Phoenix was closer. They weren't in Phoenix. They weren't in Phoenix. I just knew. I mean, it's a five-hour drive. Yeah. I I didn't want to live in Southern California. It's expensive, and I just like a little more space, and you know, so. I didn't want to live there. I just wanted to be close enough. Montana, you know, in the winter time, it's just a rough yeah. back and forth. The travel's harder. Montana is so beautiful, though. Oh yeah, I lived at the base of Glacier National Park, Whitefish, Kalispell area, right there. It's gorgeous. How do you land a gig like that? You know, it's interesting. There's so so few speech language pathologists. There's a critical need. So for rural places like that, they will pay travelers to come in. So if you're, if you have, if you hold one of these specialty clinical licenses that they need, yeah. they will pay to bring you there they will put you up in a furnished place and pay you a salary. It's a good gig. Most of the school-based speech language pathologists when I was there had been in their positions for 20 plus years because as school-based speech language pathologists, they just work, they get paid 12 months, they work nine months, they have summers off and they live in Montana at the base of Glacier National. They're not going anywhere. Wow. <laughs> All right. So I need to study speech language pathology. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay. I've only been to Missoula and like that part that mm-hmm. kind of uh, meets up against uh, Idaho in the mountains there. But it's like, oh, my God, I would go there all the time. Yeah. I mean, if you if you I highly recommend it. If you can get to Whitefish and I don't know if you ski or snowboard, but Big Mountain is amazing. And you can ski and ski out like you can rent a cabin. Yeah. AT and- skiing. I'm all about that. Okay. I'll ski all day with no chairlift. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. The chairlift is not fun, but yeah. It's well, it's a workout it. though. It's it like is. you, if you want to ski that mountain, you climb that mountain, right? You ski up to ski down. Yep. That's great. That's, that's fantastic. like, yeah, it's a, you know, 
10,000 calorie day if, no you, kidding. if you're getting on it. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. That's awesome. Burn your turns. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I know that I'm talking to someone who has a PhD, but if we could get like the cereal box version of when you talk about speech language pathology, are you talking about like physical disorders that are influencing speech, uh, mental blocks that are influencing speech? Is everyone born with it? Is it acquired? All of the above. Okay. All, so we have a map clinically. We have a very big scope of practice that covers genetic or developmental and acquired um, disorders that affect speech. So the way that your mouth moves to make, to produce speech sounds, language. So the way you comprehend things and the way you put words together to express yourself, swallowing. Can you protect your airway when you swallow or are you at risk because of a neurological condition or a physiological condition of aspirating into your lungs? And that affects your speech? Or, or sorry, you focus on that effect on speech? Nope, just no? the effect. In fact, I would say 90% of what a speech language pathologist does in a hospital is swallow evaluations, both bedside and in a radiology suite where you're doing modified barium swallow studies and you're looking at why is this person repeatedly having aspiration pneumonia or they had brain surgery yesterday or a stroke yesterday. If I get them, if they're, if they're stable enough to get to the suite now, can I look at how well they're swallowing? Can I do a bedside and see how well they're swallowing? Oftentimes motor speech disorders that accompany a stroke often will coincide with a swallowing disorder as well. So clinically, the scope of practice is quite broad. The benefit of a PhD is you get to really specialize. And that does, by the way, the clinical practice includes traumatic brain injuries. It includes functional communication disorders, which might be things that don't necessarily have a clear underlying etiology, but are definitely impacting your life. It includes things like stuttering. I've worked with a lot of people who stutter. And it includes things like executive dysfunction. So your executive functions are your higher order cognitive processes. They're sort of the, the you know, in charge of the brain and the things that you, you, your impulse control and your planning and just, you know, all the things that you need, attentional control, all those things. And so you work across those broadly as a speech pathologist, but to focus with a PhD, you get to figure out where you want to go with this. And so on my committee... I had a neuropsychologist, a cognitive psychologist, a neuroscientist, and a, a neurogenic communication disorder specialist, a speech language pathologist. Um, and so that, along with the neuroscience coursework I did and the neuropsychology coursework I did, along with a lot of statistics and psychology coursework, really shaped the, the path to be more about away from disorders. So I kind of was used to be focused more on disorders. And now I have a much more, um, instead of, I have a, instead of impairment, I have a much more empowerment approach where as veterans, it's not that there's something wrong with us. Like we haven't had a stroke over here and there's this, this sort of focal lesion in our brain causing something like this. I've, I've really shifted, even though my dissertation was on mild traumatic brain injury and high and PTSD and higher order cognitive processes. And there's some great stuff there. I mean, I've been able to isolate some things that are sensitive to these types of difficulties that 
help you assess the cognition of somebody who's been through these things. But I've really shifted more into looking at the impact of transition itself as a normal developmental process. But one that if sort of left to its druthers, in some people, it'll be fine. In some people, they're going to have, they're going to struggle. They're going to have some difficulty and that that can cause issues and exacerbate anxiety, right? It can, it can make it difficult to learn and to focus. It can, it can cause a myriad of, of issues. Yeah. When you talk about your committee, this is your PhD committee. committee. So when did you know that you wanted to apply to a PhD? And then what is, what was it like, like shopping it around, getting accepted? And then how did, how do you like build your committee? Yeah. So when I have this aha moment, literally standing there, I mean, I knew it, it wasn't even a G now I'm deciding to do it. This is, I'm going to do this. I have to do this. There was no choice in it. I was going to get a PhD and I was going to focus on veteran related issues that impact transition. And so I literally, having been faculty there for three years at that point, walked upstairs to Dr. Tomiko Azuma's office and he knocked on her door and I was like, this is going to sound great. We've been colleagues, right? This whole time. Yeah. She's an associate professor at this point. We've been in faculty meetings together, a bunch of stuff knock on her door. She's like, yes. I'm like, I have a crazy idea. Hear me out. Here's what I want to do. And I, I, I kind of laid it out and she's like, you know, I've got veterans in my class. I'm noticing these patterns. This would be a phenomenal path for you to take. Her father was retired air force, Korean war veteran himself. Very, she's very committed to this community. And it started there. I had to do a traditional application. I had to go take graduate record exams, the GREs. At 43, I had to do this, 42. I hadn't had a math class in forever. And I just, I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. And I just did it. I had to get letters of recommendation. Um, and then really, once once you start, it's it's there's some sink or swim to it. You have to be able to demonstrate you can do research. So you start a first-year project. You select a committee of people you think could give you honest criticism and hold your feet to the fire and your science. Um, and you defend it. You do the research, you write it up, you present it and you defend it publicly. So then you choose a committee for your comprehensive exams. You defend those orally and then a dissertation committee. So your committees can change a bit over time based on your individual focus, what it is you want to become the expert in because you you having a PhD means you have made a novel contribution to science. It means that you have that your work is independent. It is novel and it's a contribution to to science. So well, there before. right? Yeah. Regardless of the program, everyone in PhDs have pretty uh, solid statistics, huh? Um, no, that's not true. Um, some social sciences are focused more in qualitative research. And they will do some quantitative. They have to have a foundation in quantitative because they have to know what they're reading. Obviously, they have to be, be good research consumers, but they have a, a I don't I'm not a qualitative researcher. I couldn't tell you how to do. Qual I've collaborated with a few. I leave the qualitative to them. But it's a very interesting approach. It very much looks at narratives and themes and pulling these things out. I sat on a committee for someone getting a doctorate at Johns Hopkins University. And I was the quantitative person on her committee. 
because she had a, a quantitative piece, but it was mostly qualitative. And so I was the person who said, you ran the wrong statistical test. Sorry, go. I hate to tell you this, but so they're not all robustly quantitative statistics. If you're going to be a quantitative researcher, you certainly need several courses that take you beyond just, you know, like uh, ANOVA and regression. You just have to go, you know. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, I took like econometrics and I think math is my strong point, but I, I also notice like whenever I read it, journal article or, or, you know, someone's dissertation or, or anything like that. I'm like, man, everyone's got to get into stats, you know, yeah. but I didn't know about the, uh, the qualitative stuff. Yeah. I think the qualitative, I mean, the qualitative stuff's very interesting to read because it's so much more, it's very thematic and it's very, um, I collaborated with a researcher in Wyoming, Aaron Bush, good friend of mine there, university of Wyoming. She did, the quantitative piece to some outcomes for the cognitive coaching clinic I ran for veterans, the um, veteran specialty clinic at ASU. I hate even calling it a clinic, veteran specialty center um, office. So she did a qualitative piece to look at what are the themes that, that veterans valued in that program. What is it that they held on to and took? And so she did her qualitative magic over there. So. Okay. So your dissertation was about MTBI and PTSD and PTSD and the uh, higher level cognitive function Mm -hmm. and then working memory or recall. So, yeah, I focused heavily on, did you read my dissertation? (laughs) I read the abstract. It's like 120 pages. I know. I I don't 126 right here. Oh, okay. I'm sure there's mistakes. So don't, please don't tell me. I just have never looked back, but um, yeah, I looked at higher order cognitive processes, including, um, uh, verbal working memory, um, visual spatial working memory. I had measures of attentional control. I had some simple measures of rote memory as well. I pulled in, basically what I decided to do was what I was noticing is mild traumatic brain injury is underreported, right? I mean, I always tell people I had five jumps to get my jump wings. If on the fifth jump or fourth jump, if on the fourth jump, I hit my head, do you think I'm telling anyone? No way. Because there won't be a fifth jump. So no one tells. And also in the chaos of combat somewhat, really, if you've got a threat or actual loss of life and limb, or you can be like, you know, I feel a little dizzy. You're just not doing that. And so now that we know more people, still the minority, but more people have long-term consequences from mild traumatic brain injury or concussion, then once thought, what you end up with is a service member who is functioning quite well in the high structure of their military service, right? Even though it's it can be high pressure, they engage you in overlearning for a reason. So you don't need your prefrontal cortex for decision making in the moment. You can rely on primitive parts of your brain because you've overlearned what you need to do. And that's not always true, but you can function, especially in certain situations. But when you get out of the military and all of that structure goes away, you, you might for the first time be experiencing the long-term consequences of a mild traumatic brain injury or multiple mild traumatic brain injuries or those combined with post-traumatic stress, right? So now you're in the chaos of a classroom. This kid's on his cell phone. The, the, the instructor's saying one thing, but the slides read a different thing. There's paper wrestling over here and a door slamming and the air just came on and you're like, whoa, I can't function. And so these women and men were going to VA going, Hey, something's wrong with my brain. 
And in VA, they would give them a standard battery of neuropsychological assessments. That is done one-on-one in a quiet room with the goal of eliciting the best possible performance. There's no ecological validity. That looks nothing like the chaos of a classroom. Right. Or the noise of an office. Looks nothing like it, right? So I purposely included many of those measures to show that despite these measures being totally normal, if I tweak it up just a little bit, if we go to 11, then these measures can actually separate veterans with a history of mild traumatic brain injury from those with no such history. And some of those measures are, they include things like um, a very stress-inducing one is a serial addition task where I give you a number like one and you say one. And then I say, I give you another number like two. And now you've got to add it to the previous number. So that would be three. three. Then I give you another number six and you've got to add it to the previous number that would be nine no you don't add it to the sum you add it to the previous number you have to forget the sum oh okay let's try don't yeah don't feel bad about this is this is this is exactly (laughs) this is exactly what this test does and it eventually so i'll get do it again so if i say one you say one one yeah four five two Six. Exactly. Now you've got okay. it and you're adding it to the previous number. So what it means, it's, it's, it's an updating task. Your brain has to forget one thing, but it has to maintain another and then update continually. And this is working memory that we're getting um, into? Serial updating. It's, it's an executive function, but yes, working memories and it is related. Okay. I mean, we could have debates about these things. It's, okay. But essentially, when that's done clinically, they do about 25 or 30 maybe 50 at the most examples of that. I did 100. In the first 50, veterans with a mild traumatic brain injury looked exactly like veterans without. After the first 50, they looked so drastically different. It was statistically significant, and you could tell the difference. I could show you the graph, and you would be blown away. Was Wait, so... Iterations 51 through 100 were the same conditions? or you, Same conditions. You, oh, yeah. And there was no stopping point. It just kept going. And so it's something about the endurance hmm. that was impacting. So I purposely in that dissertation picked typical tasks. And then I picked more complex tasks because I wanted to say, you are, you are telling these veterans there's nothing wrong with the way their brain works. But you're using things, tools that, are, that were normed and intended to measure people with severe neurological impairment, not mild. So that was kind of the point of that. Hmm. Um, Yeah. I'm 35. I have trouble figuring out if uh, any kind of like cognitive slip or, or, uh, you know, when I'm not at my peak, if it's, if it's from all the MTBI buildup or if it's just from aging or if it's just from capacity and I'm so busy like at that point and right. I can't, you know, I can't isolate it. So I try not to self-diagnose. Yeah. I mean, th- these waters are muddy. They're very muddy um, because so much can impact and sleep. You know, we hear about sleep. Well, your sleep can be impaired if you've had a concussion, right? But guess what? If you, if you're sleep deprived, you're more vulnerable to the effects of, an, of a concussion. So, and, and, and sleep is a big predictor of, I mean, it can impact your ability to learn. Anxiety can impact your ability to learn. So everybody has some variability, nutrition, sleep, anxiety. But, you know, it is it is hard to filter that out. But in those cases, in some of those cases with these different tasks, 
even when PTSD was included as a potential factor, it was just the mild traumatic brain injury that stood out. So we, we did take into account measures of anxiety, stress, other diagnoses. Um, we asked about long-term histories, learning disabilities in high school and earlier. So we did look at all those factors when we did that. Yeah. Do people tell you it seems like it's kind of spinning plates, like holding a lot of thoughts mm-hmm. in the in their you know, working function at once? Because like you said, the military trains you to, like that's why they call them battle drills, mm-hmm. right? It's like, so you know what to do when someone's shooting at you? It's a drill mm-hmm. and you've done it a bunch. And, yep. and you just like, it's not always going to be the same. Principally, it's kind of the same. Mm-hmm. But now you start working and, like a lot of military jobs are in the physical space. Mm-hmm. A lot of professions or education is in the abstract space. And now you're having to hold on to a bunch mm-hmm. of different thoughts in the abstract yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Is that like a common difficulty? Yeah, it is a very common difficulty. And that was the point of that grant funded veteran specialty clinic was to help you learn to start to identify some things for yourself. You know, I would meet with people and I would say, you know, let's just like, what are your goals? Well, I want to get A's in my classes. That's a fine product oriented goal. What's the process? What are the barriers? What's stopping you from getting and teaching people to identify those things for themselves and, and to start to control their own environments. You know, you're having trouble learning, but you've got the TV on over here and you're listening to music while you're trying to do this. And when you were trying to learn multi, people will brag about being able to multitask. I'm a, I'm a single tasker. Good. I tell everyone Good. I work with that. Good. It, multitasking is toxic for your brain. And people may brag about their ability to do it. And there are times when it's necessary. Ask any new mom. You've got to do that. But it isn't ideal. And if you can teach people to minimize those things and also to stop relying on the little quick memory part of your brain, your rote memory. It's your weakest part. You, if you can learn how to utilize the parts of your memory that allow you to deeply encode the information, because how many times did you ever learn something, take a test and do the data dump? Like oh, yeah. couldn't tell you. Yeah. But for people who want to go on and build on their knowledge, teaching them how to, to learn in a way where they can store that information long-term and not just store it long-term, but retrieve it in the moment that they need to be able to retrieve it. That's the important thing. So. Yeah. I remember working with someone who would always brag about being a multitasker. <laughs> I'd just say quietly to myself, like, no, you just do a bunch of things shitty at once. Exactly. That is exactly it. You're not doing one, any one thing well. You're doing a bunch of stuff, but you're not doing any one of them very well at all. So, yeah, exactly. So don't ever give that up. Be the, the, the focused guy on one task. That's okay. I've also noticed personally, not to turn this into a session or anything, there's this strange thing that happens where I'll be mid-sentence and I can't recall just a word. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, you know, I use plenty of SAT words here and there, mm-hmm. but it will be like a very simple word. Stops me in my tracks, and then I have to talk around it or find. There are na- there are words for both of those things you're describing. Really? Yeah. So who is it in Looney Tunes? Like Porky Pig? Mm-hmm. Like he can't, or is it Porky Pig or somebody else? Porky Pig is who they portray as a stutterer. 
But what? aside from the stutter, he tries to say something like a few times and then says something else. Yep. So what you're describing first is called dysnomia. And in severe cases, we would call it anomia. It's word finding. It's the tip of the tongue effect. You know what you want to say. You can't find the right word. It's just like when, what's the name of that actress that was in that movie? It's the right. same thing, but it's happening to you for the word pen or a common word. Maybe not that simple, but a common word, right? right? One that you use frequently and eventually you'll get it. But what you're doing to choose a different word, right, is circumlocution. You're talking around that word. And that's a good strategy. If you're over the age of 30, you're going to have dysnomic moments. It's going to happen to you. And it's actually going to get a little bit worse as you get older. And that strategy of being able to select a different word or self-cue, um, because you want to keep the conversation going. You don't want to just... Uh. Right. Like if I'm if I'm conducting a meeting at work or host, uh-huh. hosting a podcast, right. but I, don't, I can't edit my meetings Mm-mm. when they're in real time. I can edit the podcast. It's kind of embarrassing, but it's also just derailing and you want to keep momentum if you're trying to have an effect. Right. But it is, it's normal. It's common. And being efficient at talking around it is a great strategy to keep it moving forward. You see this effect in stroke to the extreme where if you just give the first, the person, the first sound, oftentimes it's phonemic cueing, it'll and, and that it'll cue them and they'll know what they want to say. But the worst thing you can do to somebody having a dysnomic moment is to start shouting things at them. You know, bottle, cup, because then it's just like, it's shattered. You're never going to think of the right word as long yeah. as somebody's sh- shouting it at you. It's like shouting numbers at someone who's trying to add. Exactly. Exactly. And this is just your your brains. You know, you've, you've got this mental lexicon. It's organized a particular way. And sometimes getting there is... It's hard. It doesn't mean the word's not there. It just means your ability to get to it hmm. is impacted. So, and that will be worse with uh, sleep deprivation, anxiety, those types of things. So. Yeah. Do you call your kids by each other's names or the kids by the pets' names? I call the kids by three boys is tough. And I mean, they make fun of me. Sometimes I'm like, whichever one of you it is, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I do that. I call them by each other's names all the time. They just shake their heads. With the MTBI stuff, mm-hmm. does that cross over into CTE? Because I know that that is very popular nowadays, too. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, they had they had the movie, the big NFL stuff, and then the movie comes out. And then you yeah. know, everyone in football is talking about it. Mm-hmm. But then youth sports. And then it's like when I listen to this stuff, I'm like. Serial subconcussive blast trauma. Yeah, that's like my you know everyday job. Yeah, 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 and 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 it, yeah. Or what's the difference? Well, the difference is one is a result of accumulation of the others, repeated okay. brain tissue displacement, or you know blows to the head. I mean, originally, blast concussion wasn't even a thing. In the beginning, the primary wave wasn't considered in and of itself to cause damage or displacement of your of your brain tissue. They thought that in order to sustain a brain injury from a blast, you either had to take something that the blast blew into the air, shrapnel or something to hit you in the head, or it had to displace your body so that you fell like you were lifted off the ground and hit your head. The coup and the contra coup. Right, exactly. Yeah. But now they understand the blast itself is sufficient to cause diffuse axonal shearing. 
And so diffuse, it can cause some, um, some damage as well. And so accumulation of all those things can result in CTE. And, you know, for me, moving into the Global Sport Institute and being a researcher there made perfect sense because we've got these two highly physical, trained, disciplined, all-encompassing identities, athlete, veteran, who sustain more than average, at least mild traumatic brain injuries, more than the average population, both of these. And both of these populations are at risk for some of these more chronic, like this, you know, C, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So it's the result of all these. And so to me, it, it makes it makes perfect sense to study both of these, but also more so from the identity perspective too, which, you know, is a lot of what I focus on right now. Yeah, I kind of connected those in separate, but didn't really bring them together because the identity thing and then the, mm-hmm. uh, the brain stuff. And I don't know if I mentioned this when we caught up last month, but uh, another one of our guests... Uh, a guy named Nate Boyer started up this uh, charity called Merging Vets and Players, where I think they focus a lot on the identity thing. They, they create teams and get people together. And uh, I think they do a lot of like boxing and and training and sweating together. And I'm actually on a panel next month with somebody that works with Nate Boyer in that organization. I would have to look it up for you. Um, I I don't know him. We're just now being e-introduced because we're going to be on this panel together. Oh, that's great. Um, So I just got an email like yesterday and I, of course, doing my research on him. Oh, and then remembered we had talked about this, but that identity piece is, um, it's not just identity. I would say it's, it's the whole thing. So I've talked about this before that the veteran, although the veteran becomes a veteran in sometimes a short period of time, it doesn't, your military identity doesn't start till adulthood. Whereas the athlete, their identity starts in T-ball sometimes, right? Or at birth, their parents have these ideas. It's their whole life. You're like Tiger Woods and your, your dad's loading your crib up with golf clubs. Yeah, exactly. It's your whole life. Either way, both of them will end. You're not going to be playing the game forever. You're not going to be in the military forever. And it's the case that both of these populations often don't know who they are once it's gone. Once they leave the game or they leave military service, there isn't a, oftentimes there's this, I can't wait. I'm going to do this. Sometimes it's a shoot. My career ended too soon because I had this injury or, you know, who knows, but whether you desired it or not, now you're in a place where your community has kind of gone away, your structure has gone away, and now you've got to figure out who your civilian or non-athletic self is. And the pushback I get, because I say we've got to get, you know, left a bang, right? We've got to go back and, and do some pre-veteran stuff. We've got to be able to make sure that people know and can appreciate their pathway. And the argument is, how can you do that when we need them fully invested in their military selves in order to live, right? And the same thing said about athletes. You can't talk to an athlete, elite athlete, about leaving the game in the very moment we need them to win. They need to be all in and believe this is never going to end. But that's not good for them. They they need to know it's it will end. You know, that was my other talk. You know, the yeah, game yeah. always ends. Yeah, you talk about something called identity foreclosure. Exactly. Exactly. And they say every athlete dies two deaths when the game ends and then when they truly die, um, because it is identity foreclosure. If I am not NFL player, NBA star, 
NCAA star, then who am I? Right. You know, and now the, these kids coming up when they when a kid at 15 is identified as the next hottest thing and you've got colleges and professional leagues watching them from 15. These kids are also being told, build your brand as an athlete. It's who you are. It's who you are. Everything you tweet. Build right. your brand. Build Check your brand. out the right Bible verses to yeah. put on your Instagram. Exactly. And tie everything to your athletic identity. And so now, you know, and you can see the veteran who doesn't know how to make room for a civilian self. You can sometimes see them like they're just as they've got the hat and the shirt and they're not there's they they and there's something about it, isn't there in 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 sort of the induction process into the military into having this almost disdain for your civilian self. You've got to kind of get rid of that, don't you? You right. have to dirty, nasty civilians. Yeah, exactly. Lazy, lazy. Yeah. yeah. And and so how do we expect people to come in, you know, out of the military at 30, 35 and try to go get a corporate job and respect the 28 year old. Yeah. When your boss is five years younger than you, mm-hmm. 10, ten years, years younger than you, maybe, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and being able to, I think be, being able to have time at the end of your military service to prepare for the next phase and, and there are people doing that, but they tend to be quite isolated. They tend to be, you know, unit specific where uh, and, and they don't tend to be military wide or even branch wide. They're very unit specific of we're going to prep people for transition and the existing transition programs for both athletes and military service members tend to be one offs like financial boot camp. Hey everybody, another quick break in the action to see how you can support the show. If you're not following us on Instagram or Twitter, please go do that at Thank You Now What. You're going to see show updates, audiogram content, and see us follow all the other prior guests and, uh, and keep you up to date on what they're into. Also, we're going to be sending out some uh, requests for bonus episode content, trying to crowdsource that. So tell us what you want to hear about. If you're in the search for some show swag, you can head over to our website at thankyouknowwhat.com and click the merchandise link. You'll get to see our very cool and very subtle show design by our buddy Chris Lang at Southern Northern. Um, He put this together for us. We got a few colors. I went ahead and got the army green because, of course, uh, it looks and feels great. These great t-shirts. And I may go for the hoodie next myself. Um... You can still find everything else out about us at thankyounowwhat.com, our website. There we have our entire backlog of episodes and uh, descriptions, links. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you'll see some links for PayPal and Patreon. You can think of PayPal as more of a one-off contribution, whereas Patreon uh, gets you some perks starting at just a dollar an episode. You can click the link, or you can head directly to patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat to see more. Please know that when you share with us in the cost of doing business, whatever doesn't go straight to production costs gets redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans. If you want to give directly to those nonprofits, you can hit up our website and go to the nonprofits link. If you do nothing else, please go ahead and tell someone about the show who you think will like it. Because uh, we all know that the most effective advertising is simply word of mouth. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. It's 
in normal times, we could have gone to my office, but they won't let anyone into Sun Devil Stadium who doesn't work there. Hmm. So like, I mean, I have to show ID. Um, one of my coworkers, we've all gotten into roller skating, not rollerblading, but like old school roller skating, roller derby stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah What's your we, roller derby name? Uh, well, I don't have a roller derby okay. name. They're younger than I am. Um, I roller skate. Like I've got the cool skates. And um, since the stadium's been remodeled, one of my coworkers was there and she was roller skating around the stadium, just kind of scoping it out. And she got stopped by security and they're like, how'd you get in here? She's like, I work here. He said, oh, okay. So off she went skating around. She's just like scoping out the skating routes for us when we get there. But a couple of them are definitely uh, looking at roller derby type stuff. I, I definitely would like to keep my hips as long as possible. Okay. Well, you could be like, uh, you know, the coach or the manager. There we go. You could have like, I mean, you're a paratrooper, so you could have a super, you know, gangster name. Yeah, we'll have to that. think about one. Yeah, we yeah we have to think about that one. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. I, I I'm I'm pretty sure, given military experience, we can come up with a nickname. That's that's what we do, right? So yeah, maybe the listeners will, will kick in there. Get, yeah, yeah, kick in. <laughs> All right, so we. Before we're sorting out studio issues. Yeah, we were just talking about... We were talking about... So, actually, so you were getting into this, and it made me think... I think that we talked about this with Megan Mobs. Yes. She said that... uh, And if I'm misquoting her, I apologize. I'll be able to hear it when I go edit the episode. But veterans who dress the part have a tougher time. Mm -hmm. They do. Yeah, she deals, Megan Moggs is amazing. She deals, although there's some overlap in our work, she deals largely in um, transition stress as a factor. And it's similar, like we've, in fact, she asked me if I would send her the scales we were developing. We, those, you know, how academic publications work, I'm sure it will be published within a year. It's been submitted, but we developed scales that measure the impact of transition itself and loss of bonds itself. And when I launched those scales out to transitioning veterans, I just got emails back from people saying, you just put words to what I'm feeling. I didn't realize this and blah, blah, blah. So, and it's definitely the case that the person who wants you to know and see their veteran self all the time struggles the most. There's just no room for their civilian self and they don't want it. They're not, they're not looking for it. And I, you know, I worry, I think hero worship is a really bad thing for veterans when combined with other things. Like when you have a veteran who has that all encompassed identity, they're dressing the part, they're making no room for their civilian selves. They don't value that. And, and their veteran self is everything they were. If you combine that with hero worship and a sense of, well, you get everything free because you're a veteran. It, it just is self-perpetuating causes problems. Sometimes I think about it like Rocky Three. We talk a lot about movies in here, but Rocky Three. I don't know how big of a Rocky fan you are. Yeah, I've seen them all. The one where he goes against Clubber Lang. Oh yeah. He has to teach himself how to be hungry again. Yeah. Because he gets comfortable. Right. So you think that this hero status is kind of like that? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that those who kind of have the more humble service and humble leadership and, or whatever, or yeah, I I think, I I definitely think that has something to do with it. I don't think I've ever thought about it in terms of, you know, I got to get hungry again, but that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I just, I think that the, 
it's the person who needs to tell you that they are a war veteran in the first 10 seconds they meet you, whether it fits into the conversation or not. You know, it's like the guy who, the athlete who needs to tell you they played football in college in the first 10 seconds they met you, whether it's relevant or not. Both of those things are symptomatic of the same thing. Well, now that's been taken over by CrossFit. Yes, no kidding. CrossFit and in certain circles, you may have to deal with um, essential oils as the the cure to everything. (laughs) Essential oils are the new Motrin. Ben talks about essential oils all the time. We does he? Yeah, we can't, we can't even get any work done. Oh, okay. Does is he? A, does he? Um, juicing is another thing that people really get into when people juice. They really juice, and they want you to know how amazing juicing is. So, yeah, he he is he a juicer too? He might not even be on the phone anymore to defend himself. I'm just firing up some essential oils like this. <laughs> yeah, when when it's in the car, I like to do some incense too. But you know, I'll take what I can get. Okay. When you see people transitioning, you did one enlistment, so you're still early 20s when you got out. Mm -hmm. I was like a mid-range guy, Mm -hmm. uh, was in my first semester of college for my 30th birthday, but I had 12 12 years in the Army. But we know people like uh, just interviewed Nelson Miller, a guy down in Tucson, graduated from U of A with his bachelor's at like 50. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another guy, actually, also U of A, who was on episode four, I believe, Monty Leha, uh, got his bachelor's at like 45 or so. Mm-hmm. Do you focus any on the difference between what stage of life you're in, too? Oh, yeah. Because I know a guy, uh, don't know if he listens, shout out Jeremiah. He, like, he was a ranger, um, got out still in his 20s, went to school in New York. Met a girl in school, and I don't know. I think they might be getting married. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But, and like, he fit right in. Mm-hmm. You know, well, maybe I don't want to speak for him. Right. But he was hanging out with college kids. Yeah. He was building relationships. Yeah. And, yeah. Me, I showed up to the campus to get a class done, and then I left the campus. That was me. And I lived, I was just a New York City resident. Yeah. I, I, that was me. That was me. I was I was on campus to get my class. You were still like tw- twenty. Yeah, but you, you know, But you know what's funny is ask an eighteen year old about a twenty. You know, a twenty something, and yeah. they, you know. And I will tell you when I started graduate school, my cohort they would call me grandma. I was only a few years older than they were, mm. but I was older. You know, and I had a kid, and so I, yeah, I mean, so. To an 18-year-old, a 23-year-old is like, wow, yeah, that's old. Like to a high school senior, a college freshman knows everything about life. Right. Yeah. Wow. They, they're worldly. So, <laughs> so yeah, it, it, I do, we do think about stage of life and, and where you are, where school fits in or, or job or, or whatever. But interestingly, I, I found that educating faculty and educating counselors and educating disability resource services was some of the biggest impact I had was some of the biggest work I needed to do. I was shocked that first of all, faculty think, well, if I had a veteran in my class, I would know they, they track them and tutor them like the athletes, right? No, 
Not at all. I must have missed that. Yeah, me too. No, that doesn't happen. And, and they're shocked. And in fact, when I defended my dissertation, the department chair, the full professor, raised his hand to ask a question and said to me, well, you studied ASU students with all these resources they have. What do you think, you know, if you studied somewhere else where they didn't have all these resources? And I said, what resources do you think they have? And he couldn't answer me, which was fun, by the way, for me. Um, And I think that there's this assumption that a veteran with their GI Bill is that we just handhold them, give them everything they need so that they have the easiest possible college experience. And then we give them all jobs because that's, you know, we hire veterans, you see that out there and that's a perception. And so that, that was faculty, you know, getting them to understand, you know, just because that person in your class is 35 years old, doesn't mean they want to lead the group project every time. It really doesn't. In fact, maybe they feel because they're older, they've been out of school longer, they're less qualified to lead the subject matter. You see them as a leader, but do they always want to be the leader? You know, they may be feeling more vulnerable about math because they haven't been in a math class since their junior year of high school. You've got to consider those things. And then from the disability resource services side, which they've changed their name, thankfully, and it's not labeled that anymore, but veterans for the most part were like, that's not me. I don't go there. That's for, you know, that's cheating. I don't want to, it it was a weird disconnect to get them to be able to handle both the counselors there to be able to welcome veterans in, to understand that this person, if you need them to go get tested, they're not going to go to VA and get a full neuropsychological battery this week or next. They're not. If they get in for that, if if they get in for that, it's going to be a while and you can't expect them, you know. So I think it's it's not it is incumbent upon the veteran and as well to kind of learn, you know, you're you're coming home to a foreign land, so to speak. Right. These people speak a different language. They behave by different norms. And you do have to learn about that the same way you learned norms and customs when you went in country somewhere else. But it's also these other s- systems welcoming them back have this narrative of you are, you're a homeless person or you're a hero. And I don't know how to think about you as a veteran in any other way. Yeah. And I've heard people say, I would hire any veteran who walks through my door. Well, then you're an idiot. <laughs> I served with wonderful people and I served with not so we're humans. We're not all a good fit for your business. Right. You know, and that's that hero worship thing that I think isn't great. And then not letting someone kind of find the path to what they actually want to do in life, but kind of like billeting out some positions as this like altruistic thing where, Hey, look, we're hiring veterans. Something we notice on the show is that typically the first thing you do after service is not the thing that you're going to keep doing. It's kind of like, Oh, now let me figure out what I actually Yep, exactly. And I think that time is important, but there's a pressure because you're older. Right. And so there is this, like, I should have this, I I, got to figure this out. And you need some experience in this world to kind of figure out what it is you want to do. And that was one of the things like at that, when I, when I did the cognitive coaching, it was called coaching because I'm not the expert. We're both experts. Like you and I together, this is a team and we are both experts and I have some ideas uh, and I know how the brain works and I know some things that work and don't work. 
but you know what works for you. If I ask you to try something and you don't have buy-in and you know you're not going to do that. Like I've told people, if I ever like I'm in a situation where I need therapy and you're going to tell me to journal, it's not happening. I, I fast forward the relaxation portion, portions of yoga tapes. Okay. I just, <laughs> this is not who I am. So you know yourself, you're the expert on you, but just teaching somebody how to identify goals, processes, barriers, how to identify their team, their mission, you know, to do the things that used to be done externally for you in the military. How do you do that for yourself? And, and athletes are in the same exact boat. I was talking to someone who was a yoga instructor who said, well, I'm, I'm writing down my class. Like I'm writing down all my thoughts and it's like, no offense to yoga instructors. I said, um, well, don't you just tell them what the next stretch is? So, you know, that would probably get me like run over in traffic from Maybe, a, from yeah. a yoga instructor who's listening. But I, I understand what you say. Cause a lot of, uh, I don't get into the spiritual stuff there too. The closest I came was running and I'm, yeah. I'm heartbroken now that I can't put up the kind of miles that I need to put up to get my brain in the space. I like it to be in. I would love to be able to do that, but I still, I mean, I work out. I work out. I try to stay fit. I like to ski. I like to be outdoors. I'm not a gym person. I, I need the sun. I need to be outside. And particularly, I mean, that's one of the things I loved about running was just the ultimate freedom through on my shoes. I open my door off. I go. We talked a little bit about the veteran clinic that you started. Yep. Uh, global sport Institute that you joined. Yep. And then you also teach. I'm not teaching this semester completely. I'm team teaching for some, I don't want to say exactly what it is, but it's some, it's an elite athlete situation. So, um, yeah, so I'm kind of team teaching that I taught for years, 10 years, but right now I'm solely dedicated to research right now, which is fantastic. And my relationship with global sport Institute was very also serendipitous. This is, they were sort of starting at ASU, Steve Borden, who's a dear friend who was the director of the Pat Tillman Veterans Center, was looking at what they were trying to do. And they said, well, you need to meet Karen Gallagher. And I met with them and I consulted. They bought out a teaching load for me so that I could consult with them on an NFL study. And when I decided to move on from my clinical position and look for a more PhD compatible position, they were like, come on over and... So it just, it worked out. So now I'm the senior researcher there. I have a fantastic research team. It means that I'm, my research is focused across the Institute and collaborating with people across the university, which is fantastic. I mean, my brain is just learning all the time. Yeah. Um, I still have my own specialized research that I do. Um, in fact, Tomiko Azuma and I are currently have a grant funded um, research that looks more at female veterans and female athletes and self-perceptions of injury. So I still get to focus on my own particular area, but I do work across the Institute. So what is, what do you mean by self-perceptions of injury? So how do you, it can be a lot of things. Like we're looking at a lot of factors, like your self-perceptions of your maybe cognitive performance after concussion, what you know about concussion, um, your, how your anxiety impacts it, what you self-report of your injuries and your perception of the impact on life, and then how that 
how that results in impacting quality of life, resilience, how is resilience a factor in better quality of life outcomes? So we're looking at, it's actually, it's huge. It's uh, a number of measures that include, like I said, anxiety, there's a depression scale, there is a resilience, the Connor Davison resilience scale. There's, I believe we did include the um, intolerance of uncertainty scale. So we're looking at a number of these measures and how they perceive their injuries and, and how that results in these basic, these out, wellness outcome measures. So a lot of it is more survey-based and not, which is great for the COVID era because it's very hard to put humans in a lab right now. Do you think that people will lean on stuff like this for, or lean on like combat injuries or, or brain injuries. And I don't want to say excuse making, but like making sense of, you know, versus like, cause I kind of vacillate between, see, I recall the word vacillate, but I there can't recall, I can't recall the word like bowl of soup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was I even about to say? No, so will they lean so, on it? Yeah. Will they, so you know, I kind of go back and forth between like recognizing, okay, maybe there is some kind of effect that I'm dealing with right now. So, so I'm cognizant of it, but also saying like, well, in the life of Matt, the viewer, there are no excuses. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I get what you're saying. And I often lead with, I, I, I'll send it to you if you like. I have a list of things normal people forget and the rates at which they forget them. Like walking into a room and remembering what you went into the room for. Uh, for me, it's opening the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> I'll open the fridge and stare there and then just shut it. You are not alone. You are not alone. So you're right. And I think it's human nature to want to find a cause for something you perceive as not normal or a difficulty in yourself, right? It's human nature to want to say, I, ha I had this brain injury back here. It, it could be the total cause of this. And it could. Or I had, you know, PTSD or I had this or I had that. I mean, all of those things could be a cause for this. It's why I started looking at transition in and of itself, because I think that we kind of need to be kinder to ourselves in terms of the standard to which we hold ourselves all the time. You know, we need to accept that, you know what, transition's hard. It sucks. And I'm going to feel some kind of way about it. I'm going to feel sad. I'm going to have anxiety. I'm not going to be able to function at the level I want to function. And it's okay. It's normal. I, if we just normalize it, if I just prepare you that it's coming, that and you can expect it when you get there and it happens to you, you're not going to go, there's something wrong with my brain. You're going to think, oh yeah, this is transition. I am feeling this. I mean, not to discount those other things. Those things should be treated. But I do think it's human nature. Like you ever feel a twinge in your side? And you're like, I wonder if that's appendicitis. Nope, just a twinge on your side. One time I was out on a run. I had this new water bottle and I'm you know, squeezing this water bottle. I'm drinking it. It fits on my hand. I'm running. And I started to feel a chest pain and I'm like, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. Mm. And then in the next moment, I'm like, no, I'm not because I'm breathing and still running and not. And then I realized I was like squeezing all this air and I just kind of needed to belch. <laughs> it was going to be fine. <laughs> so you know what I mean? Though we, the, It's human nature. You identify something and you think something's wrong. And I think it's the case with military to civilian transition. We do nothing to tell you 
you're going to feel lost. You're going to feel anxiety. There's not going to be the structure you're used to. You're not going to know who you are, when you fit in. And it's okay. It's normal. Here's some tools to deal with it. Here's some resources to deal with it. Here's a follow-up. Here's how we stay connected with you. Here's how we get you connected out in your civilian society. And, you know, we've got to do instead of here's how you access your benefits so you can get your disability claims in. And um, here's how you manage your finances. And here's how you go to school. And those are good things. And I hear people go, we just need to get them jobs. These piecemeal things need to look more holistically at the whole veteran, at, you know, all these areas so that. But I still say, don't wait till someone's lost before you give them the map. Give them the map up front. Tell them what's coming. I mean, a job that you don't even particularly like, too, is just kind of like being in a being like a lab rat. Yeah. You know, it's like push, yeah. push the button, get sugar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I've talked about this even with my sons who aren't in the military or anything and just about working jobs. They're not. They don't see themselves, especially the older one who's kind of now trying to find a real career. You know, you enjoyed a culture of mediocrity in some job that you could float through and get enough of a paycheck to get on by. And at some point, that's not enough. You know, you need to feed your soul. You need to serve a purpose that's bigger than yourself. And I don't even mean that in the spiritual sense, although it certainly could be. I just mean at the end of the day, if you if what you're doing matters beyond your paycheck and you and your direct life, does it matter in some bigger way that that's that's what humans need to be happy? I've also heard you use a phrase discharge on admission. Can you yeah. Talk about where you got that from and, and how to think about it. You know, working in a hospital as a medical SLP all those years, I mean, that's drilled into you. Discharge planning starts on admission. So the soon, the second a patient's admitted to the hospital, you're already thinking about their next level of care. Are they going to go to a, a skilled nursing facility? Are they going to rehab? Are they going straight from ICU to intermediate care and then home? You know, what's their next level of care? So you're planning that the day they're admitted to whatever level of care it is. And that's what I've said. You know, I think the British Army sort of does this version of discharge planning on admission to the military. Like there is part of the training that, that considers life after the military, that you're not going to be here forever. And that's what I mean is, is, you know, you give up your civilian self and I understand firsthand why that's necessary. I know who I was before I joined the army and I know who I became and how I became. And I know I, I learned and earned skills that were necessary, but I also think we, we can't seal off this civilian, you know, you know, living that is inevitable. I mean, it, it, it's inevitable and you don't know when it's coming. I mean, you might get a static line injury on a jump and you're toast, you're done now. And, you know, if they can't rehab it to standard, you're going home whether you want to or not. And and if it's if it's that moment that you start thinking about what do I do now? Man, that sucks. You know, I mean, I just I think discharge needs to start on admission. Yeah, I talk to people who say, yeah, I'm a year out just starting to get my appointments done. And then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. I'm six months out. I'm three months out. Or people say, 
hey, when should I start planning? Like way earlier than you probably think, whatever that is. With the understanding that your plans aren't going to go according to plan as well. There are going to be bumps in the road. It's going to be harder than you think for a lot of reasons and not the least of which is emotional. And especially if you are large and in charge and you have been the provider and you've been a leader in the military and now you get out and you're your compass is sort of broken and you're not able to have that role even within your own family. That changes things, right? I mean, I, I got an email from a, a spouse who, you know, her husband was medically discharged and it's devastating for him. It's a complete loss for him. And we just don't deal with that. And I think the mental health perspective, anything that smacks of mental health, right? We run away from, oh, don't want to be labeled as that. And I even hear a lot of the the people I've worked with have said, this is confidential, right? Because I want to keep my clearance. I want to be a contractor. So many of them go right back into contract. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's because they can't figure it out out here. So that it's the closest they come, I guess, to going back. So yeah, people ask me about the VA uh, rating process, like the exit interviews and everything like that. And they're like, now if you tell them that you saw some shit, you can't have a clearance or you can't work and you you can't be a cop and you can't do that. And I'm like, you really think that's the case? Yeah. It's a scale. It goes from zero percent to a hundred percent. Yeah. You're like, you really think that's the case? They expect you to leave and not have seen some shit? Right. So people need to be honest about that. And and I think COVID has opened up a discussion about mental health. Oh, yeah. I really do. I think oh, this isolation has been rough on a lot of people. And I'm seeing it and hearing it in the uh, athletic community because athletes like veterans, we're tough, right? We're not, you know, I mean, if it ain't broke or bleeding kind of a thing. And so they're, I think they're starting to come to the table with the mental health discussions. And I think that leadership in the military needs to make it a discussion that's okay to have. It's like this idea that if we don't talk about it, it'll just go away. No, it'll get worse. If we talk about it, actually through the shared, the bonds of military service are protective. You share experiences with your brothers and sisters that you served with. That's protective. It's actually a buffer. A lot of people don't experience any of the trauma that they witnessed until they're out because those bonds are so strong and so protective. It's only the loss of those bonds that allow them to finally feel it. And we need to tell them that. Nobody tells you that. I read in a book that uh, I haven't read and like check this out myself. But it's a book from a pretty decent author. The rate of suicide doesn't change among veterans who have been to combat and who have not been to combat, which tells me it's the loss of identity and community and purpose. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I agree. I agree. And it doesn't, you know, I've seen personally instances where, you know, you have a veteran who succeeds at school and gets a job and kills himself anyway. So, he, he was successful, right? Was he? Or was he able to put one foot in front of the other for long enough and then couldn't? So we, we do have to start putting these these things on the table. And I just feel like if leadership in the military could somehow systematically 
you know, people have talked about Megan Mobs, who you brought up, has talked about she writes a wonderful white paper. I don't know if you wrote read her white paper she wrote on transition straws and talking about the indoctrination and, and just the, the how intense the training is to become a soldier, a sailor, an airman, a marine, whatever the case may be. Hate to leave our Coast Guard buddies out, but sorry, I did on accident. Um, yes, I did. Didn't mean to as an afterthought, but anyway. But we do nothing like it, it, it. We do nothing to 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 deprogram, right? To 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 undo that and to help facilitate back into. And there have been sort of these programs here and these programs there. I I just presented to leadership from Luke Air Force Base like a month ago. General Freakley, who's the head of the Military Academic Affairs Council at ASU, had me come in and just do a little presentation, and I talked about this very thing, and I. Everybody acknowledges it's a problem. Everybody acknowledges we've got to do something well before discharge, well before ETS dates, well before whatever. And that one-off classes aren't enough, but nothing happens. Right. We all agree. Yes, yes we do. But we got other stuff on the schedule. I know. Or we got to get ready for a trip or we have to... Or the how. It's the how. Yeah. Everybody agrees on the, that it needs to happen, but how we implement it and what it exactly is, the devil's in the details. So we're pretty deep right now. I want to ask you the show question, which is who are you today? If you never served. Wow. Um, you know, I don't know if I would have bootstrapped my way out of where I was I don't, I don't even think I've talk about having it be such a part of your identity. I don't think I've ever thought about it. I, I, I think I would have tried to go to college and I don't think I would have succeeded. I don't think I had what it took to understand how to take that on and to be successful. I like to think that I've always been a service oriented person earlier in high school. I, I was thinking I, Although I'm not terribly religious or spiritual, I thought I would want to go on a mission, like missionary work type thing. Um, so I, I think I've always been a service-oriented person. I think I would have ended up in some sort of teaching, healthcare, social support, clinical somehow. I think I think I still would have ended up here in some ways, but I think it would have been different. It would have been different. It, it just would have been so different. I mean, part of it's maturation, but I, I just learned so much and became someone different, yeah. for sure. I love listening to people answer that question. <laughs> I think I thought about it driving or in the shower or something, but we ask everybody. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure some answer better than others. It's a hard question to answer. Everyone answers pretty well, yeah. And they're all pretty different. Some of the reactions are the same, but uh, they're all pretty different. They're great. Yeah. Oh, I love this interview. One, I only have one uh, disappointment. You didn't bring your ukulele. I didn't. I didn't. I, got, I didn't ask though. I got a baritone ukulele for Christmas too. I've been playing it like crazy. So really, yeah, mm. it's totally different than a concert, a tenor, or a soprano. So they're no. great. well, those are the ones I'm used to. Okay, well, I could have brought. I have a tenor <laughs> and a concert, 
multiple concerts. You, you've seen the background when, yeah. yeah, so you know that I have a, a ukulele problem, so to speak. <laughs> you just pick that up whenever? So growing up, my brother was, a, he played. I've got a great uncle who played with the big bands, you know, recorded. And my brother was so good at guitar and everything that when I tried to pick it up, he just teased me relentlessly to the point where I wouldn't touch a musical instrument. I didn't want to be teased. So I didn't touch a musical instrument. I quit, um, which is so unlike who I am now. And then a year and a half ago, I was in a store with my husband, who's a drummer. He plays guitar. My kids both play guitar and drums and keyboard and a bunch of things. And I saw this Fender, blue Fender ukulele, concert ukulele. And I was like, this is just a cool looking ukulele. And my husband said, buy it. And I said, what? I can't play. He goes, buy it and learn to play. I'll buy it for you. He bought it for me. And I signed up for lessons. I mean, literally, I'm sitting in this music store in the front room with all the kids with their violins and stuff waiting for the music teacher to come out and get you. And I took some lessons and started jamming with my sons and my husband on drums or guitar and just took to it. And it's, I would say, you know, it's, it is a thing that does bring me peace now that I can't run like I used to run. Some of that, I keep it right next to my desk. If I'm doing some complex statistical analysis, if I'm just stuck on the direction it's going, I might just pick it up and do scales or just jam out a little song or something. So it's fun. Can you send us something? We'll put it in the outro. Sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. I can't wait. Uh, yeah. I'll send, I'll, I'll send you something. I, any, any, I mean, the thing is I don't play, I don't play ukulele music. Like people say, Oh, I want to hear you play ukulele. What they're expecting is like Jason Mraz or is right. They're expecting that little plinky, but I play more like something from Nirvana's unplugged album, right? That's more my Zen or I might. Yeah. I I'm, I'm more likely to play something a little more, rock or metal oriented or something. So I am a metal hat. So um. awesome. We just keep up finding out more things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming across town, meeting me, setting aside a few hours yes. on a, you know, on a work day, on a school night. Uh, Dr. Gallagher, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Karen running a marathon, roller derbying, playing in a ukulele concert, uh, or even her day job of creating positive impact in people's lives through her dedication to research. As always, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.